The Physician's Road. Create your life in medicine, on your own terms. Today, we are on the path to wealth. Today, on the Physician's Road podcast, we have an in-depth discussion with attorney Josh Robertson about the nuances of asset protection and how to lessen and avoid undue liability in your professional practice and side businesses and investments. The Physician's Road is brought to you by Vernonville Asset Management. Vernonville Asset Management was created to help physicians build wealth and create income beyond Wall Street. Through our exclusive private investments, doctors can begin to free themselves from the burdensome regulations in healthcare by creating income streams independent of medicine. Go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get your free report, Wall Street's Biggest Lie. Again, go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get Wall Street's Biggest Lie and free yourself today. Welcome to the Physician's Road. I'm Dr. Eric Tate. Today, we're on the path to wealth, and we're continuing our series with about asset protection. And so with this podcast, we're going to do a little bit deeper of a dive about asset protection. Um, in many ways, we're going to talk about kind of the philosophical underpinnings behind it and why we as physicians can oftentimes be a target when it comes to um, being sued. And so we have Josh Robertson here today uh, from Legally Mine USA. Uh, they are our favorite asset protection firm, but we're going to talk about kind of an overview of asset protection and really why it's important. And so, uh, Josh, can you give us a little bit about your background and tell us about yourself? Absolutely. How's it going, Eric? Good. It's going great. Good. So, um, I'm an attorney here at Legally Mine, and I studied law at the University of Pacific McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, California. Prior to that, I did a Bachelor's of Arts um, at Brigham Young University in Utah. I've been with this firm for over a year now, and prior to that, I worked in the financial sector and did some estate planning on the side as well. Good. That's a that's a that's a good breadth of of, of background to have uh, for this particular firm that you're in. And so let's di- let's dive right into it. And so, if someone is out there looking for an asset protection attorney, what is it that they should be looking for? When you're out shopping for an attorney, one thing that you want to make sure you you look for in any attorney is that they're forthright with you. That they're going to tell you exactly what you want to know and what you need to know and the things that maybe are uncomfortable to talk about um, to make sure that you're getting the full picture of what could happen. That's really important. Um, In asset protection specifically, you want to make sure that an attorney you work with has their fingers in a lot of different pies. Um, There's no subspecialty of asset protection taught at law school. Um, It's not something that's actually very, it's not, a niche in the legal field that's very widely practiced. Um, It's an important niche, however. And the things that I normally go to when I talk to people about what it is I do as an attorney is I say, asset protection is, if you're looking at a Venn diagram of asset protection, it's where estate planning, tax planning, and business structures all kind of overlap. So that triangle in the center of all of those circles would be where asset protection attorneys work. Oh, that's a great visualization uh, that people can see, because what I find oftentimes when talking to physicians is some talk about, well, I'm going to go to my accountant to get my entity structure set up, and they'll tell me a little bit about the tax, and then I may ask them, well, what about the 
kind of the operating agreement and how that's going to help you in terms of asset protection. And like, they kind of give me a, a strange look. So talk mm-hmm. a little bit about uh, the importance of that operating agreement and what needs to be in there to protect someone. Because I know there's a sense out there that, well, I just have an LLC, so I'm protected. Simply having an LLC, that's a good first step. Um, but it's like buying something, a tool, and then never using it or not reading the owner's manual. It's, it's something that you need to really understand how it's going to work and how it affects and plays with all of your other aspects of your life because it is something that you want to do properly. Um, the operating agreement really governs what a business entity does, what it can do, and who the owners are and what they can do as well as what they own. Um, the important thing about the operating agreement is that it's spelled out so that if you are sued, if the worst case scenario comes down and you, you are held personally liable, that there are measures in place in the operating agreement bef- way before the lawsuit's ever on the horizon that allow you to structure your assets in a way that even if you're found liable, you still have the maximum amount of leverage as to whether or not you even have to pay that plaintiff that has won the case. Um, when we talk today, I will be basing all of my analysis and what I talk about on the worst case scenario. So um, understand that there's a lot of steps in the litigation process before we even get to, okay, now we're in trouble. Um, But we're going to assume that we're already there because that's the most illustrative case. Got it. And so, so actually I want to put a pin in that and I'm going to try to remember to come back to that. So Mm -hmm. let's, let's do a little bit more on the questions that may, that a individual may want to ask of an attorney to know whether or not they're the right one when it comes to asset protection. Sure. Um, ask them if they know the difference between an S corporation and a C corporation. Ask them if they know um, what the difference is between a corporation and a partnership, um, a corporation and a partnership versus a limited liability company. Um, because to the lay person, the distinctions don't matter, really, when it comes down to it. But for what we're doing in asset protection, they absolutely do matter. And then within those distinctions, you have to be careful when you're dealing with LLCs or limited liability companies, particularly, that you know which tax method to apply in what scenario. Because when we put together a package for a person and every person's package is individualized to them, there are large similarities but there shouldn't be a cookie cutter one size fits all for everyone because not everyone has the same assets or the same priorities in protecting those assets. Got it. And so that takes us to the next step is what are the big mistakes you see? Cause I know the firm has a a lot of um, healthcare professionals, dentists, um, Mm -hmm. um, physicians. What are the big mistakes that you see people make um, when it comes to asset protection? The first thing is not being careful. Um, and the second thing I would say, and it's, it's a harsh truth, but in protecting your assets, your life is going to get a little bit more complicated than it has been in the past, truth be told. But you need to put it into perspective in a, you know, a cost-benefit situation. It's going to cost me some more time dealing with bankers and bank accounts and keeping records. But in the end, if this very real situation where I get sued for medical malpractice comes about, I'm more secure if I take those added precautions. Um, 
and it will become more clear as we talk a little bit more, but the big thing is commingling funds. Do not commingle funds. Um, the issue is when a corporation is set up, a corporation, a partnership, or a limited liability company, what happens is you have this thing called the corporate veil that protects your personal assets. So you are an owner of the business and the business is an owner of other assets. If the business gets in trouble with a plaintiff, then what happens is the plaintiff can go after the assets of the business. That's first, that's their first target. But if we're dealing with a situation that a lot of medical professionals are in, they see the word doctor before or after a name and money signs, money signs start flashing, right? And so um, any half decent attorney is gonna look at that and say, if I can, I'm going to try to pierce this corporate veil or this protection that the company provides for me. And I want to go after the doctor's personal assets now. So now I have two targets. I have the company's assets and I have the personal assets of the professional that I'm, that's the defendant of this case. And if you commingle funds, what that means is like, if you're out to lunch and you know, this is not a business lunch, but the practice pays for it anyway. That could be, albeit a weak argument for commingling funds, meaning that now you're using the business bank account like it's your own bank account. And so it's a, it's a specific type of violation of the corporate veil principle called the alter ego, excuse me, the alter ego doctrine. Okay. Where it's like, it's not really the doctor buying lunch out of his own pocket. It's the business, but really it's the doctor buying the lunch. Okay. If that and, made sense. Got it. And and the first thing you said was not being careful. Can you define what that what you mean by not being careful? Well, the piercing of the corporate veil example that we walked through would be a perfect example of not being careful. Got it. Um, in a lawsuit, an attorney is looking for any and all weaknesses in the case. Our job as proactive attorneys. We're not litigators. We're transactional, which means we sit in an office and think about all of the things that can go wrong. And then we try to minimize that and put it in a, it, put our clients in a position where even if it goes wrong, they're better situated than they were had they not done this. And so not being careful would mainly be being sloppy with accounting books, um, mixing funds, not taking the time that it takes to do things properly. Um, those are all of the things, the same type of things that medical practitioners always do when they're in the practice, in the chair, working with their patients. You have to bring that to the record keeping as well. We understand it's tedious. It has to be done if you're going to be serious about asset protection. Got it. And so let's talk about the situation where there are a lot of physicians these days who have side businesses, side hustles, side gigs, and many of them are doing them in their own name. What is the issue or risk, whether it be that they're a physician or not, of doing conducting business outside of a corporate entity? Sure. So let's talk about McDonald's for just a second. McDonald's is a big business. And let's say that John Doe owns part of McDonald's stock. Now, Lisa walks into a McDonald's restaurant, she slips and falls and cracks her head open and she sues. Now, John is one of the shareholders 
of McDonald's. Can Lisa now target John's bank account? No. No. The reason that is, is because McDonald's as a corporate entity has its own assets. So if Lisa wants remuneration, she's going to target McDonald's as the corporate entity. So why are we talking about McDonald's? Well, on a much, much smaller scale, that's the same thing we're dealing with. If you're working in a business, in any business, not necessarily just a medical practice, but if you're working in a business, that business should own assets, things that allow the business to run. Part of that will be a bank account to pay expenses and receive income, um, pay employees overhead. Part of that will be the computers that every business has to have now to run and function and other assets as the business requires. Now, if someone gets injured, either in a business contractual relationship or in tort, which is more personal injury, but not a crime. Um, if that happens and a lawsuit is brought, if you're doing business in your own name, literally everything that you own is at risk now in that lawsuit because they're bringing the lawsuit directly against you and all of your assets are now on the table. Compare that with when you're doing business within a business entity, be it a corporation, partnership, limited liability company, that entity will have assets. And so if a lawsuit is brought, only the assets of that entity will be able to be targeted. Now, here's the careful aspect. If you're careful, we can make sure that the liability bubble or the liability target stays only on that entity. If you're not careful, the target gets a lot bigger or has the potential to. Got it. Okay. Now that is a well-reasoned argument as to why people should not conduct business uh, in their own name. Um, and so let's talk about asset protection in a philosophical way. You talked about there are many steps that lead up to a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. um, and so I know what I did um, before I actually started with you guys was I went to a plaintiff's attorney and said, okay, sue me. He was a friend of mine. And so he, he walked through a process and he's like, listen, this is where I'm going to look for what you have, what you own, this type and the other. And depending on what I can find, I may move forward or not move forward. So can you talk about the kind of prophylactic aspect of asset protection and that it oftentimes doesn't necessarily come down to you winning a case or that what, what is the philosophy behind it kind of in a global sense? Sure. The philosophy behind asset protection is to make you not a target or to make you not low hanging fruit. If someone is out looking for a lawsuit and some people do, they're crazy, but they're out there. Um, we want to make it so you're not the one that they end up on. They're, you're not the mark, for example. And so how we do that really is we take away all of the incentives that a person would have to come after you. So if in your medical practice, for example, if you are an ophthalmologist or an, op, or an optometrist, and I know there's a difference and I can never figure it out. The um, ophthalmologist is the doctor. The optometrist just does the glasses. Well, there you go. See? Learn something new every day. So um, you're going to have a lot of equipment in your office that you need to do your job, your machinery and the grinding equipment and whatever else you need. Now, if someone comes into your office and slips and falls and sues you and all of that equipment 
is owned in the name of your practice, they can use the value of that equipment in evaluation of that of the business assets. And if they win, they could potentially foreclose on that property, force a sale, and take the money. Now, not only do you have the fact that you're probably losing money from the lawsuit itself out of your bank account, you've just lost the majority of the equipment that you had that allowed you to work. That's going to be a big capital output on the back end, which means you've just lost money three ways. So one thing that we do is we make a holding entity and we transfer all of that equipment into the holding entity. Then we lease the holding entity equipment back to the practice. Now this has the, um, this has a double effect. The first effect, the first result rather than effect is the equipment itself out of the practice. Practice gets sued. Equipment can't be part of that valuation. So that's one. We've protected the equipment. The other good thing is now we have a legitimate stream of money going out of the business that no one can block or stop the money from leaving. So even if they get a lawsuit, they can't say, you can't pay the expense for your equipment because that's a reasonable, ordinary, and necessary business expense. You need the equipment to do your job. It's not artificially inflated. It's not something that's a problem. It's a legitimate business expense. And therefore, a court, as long as this is done prophylactically, as you said, isn't going to be able to get in the way of that expense leaving the business. Guess who owns the equipment holding company? You do. Now, it's a lawsuit against the practice, not the equipment holding company. And that's where we get this benefit is you still own this, so it's still your money, but it's a different name on the ownership line. And that's what becomes important. Got it. And so let's take it outside of the realm of your practice and your, your mm -hmm. practice assets. And let's take it to the personal asset side of things. Sure. Um, and I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm asking, mm -hmm. does low-hanging fruit or low-hanging target f physicians, are they more likely to be sued when it comes to a malpractice suit or not? Is that something that you can answer? Um, uh, statistically speaking, I can't, I can't give you numbers. Okay. At least right now. If I did a little digging, I probably could find some. Okay. Um, okay, perfect. I would say gut, gut check reaction, and this is such a lawyer answer, probably. Um, just because if I'm a plaintiff's attorney, you know, and that was, a, that was a good way to approach it. Go to a plaintiff's attorney that deals in personal injury and say, okay, sue me. Find different ways to sue me. That's great. I think that's a great attitude. Um, if I'm a, a decent plaintiff's attorney, I'm going to look at everything I can. I'm going to look at malpractice insurance. That's easy. If I can settle a case and walk away with a big fat commission from your malpractice insurance, I'm happy. I'm going to look at your business assets. So if you have a fancy building with a lot of nice furniture and the whole thing, that's good. I'm going to look at your personal assets. I'm going to look at how much is your home worth? What neighborhood is it in? What kind of cars do you drive? What are your hobbies? Do you have uh, uh, hobbies that a, a wealthier person has or a less wealthy person has, you know, and all of those things I'm going to look at. Do you own a boat? Do you own a plane? Do you own several nice firearms? All of those things come into the situation and there are ways of figuring out what it is you have. A lot of times with real property, it's just a public record and then it's just being observant, you know, 
sending a paralegal out to watch the potential defendant, see what he does during the day. Um, this is not something that has to be, it's not sketchy or underhanded, it's just how the process works. So I'm gonna look at all of that and if I see that you drive a brand new nice car and so does your wife and you live in a nice part of town and you have nice things, I'm gonna say, you know what, I bet I could get more from this partic particular professional than from any other professional. And so that's gonna be something I look for. Now, without an asset protection plan, if you're sued and the, the dollar amount that the plaintiff is seeking rises above the level of your malpractice insurance, which can easily be done, there are ways that you can argue for inflated costs and punitive damages and other things um, that make it very easy to get that number way high really quickly. Um, so if that's the case, your personal assets are going to be at risk. Now, if you have an asset protection plan, like we specialize in and other, and other people do as well, what we do is we set up various business entities to own different assets or groups of assets. So that even if you have this really nice house, guess what? You, the doctor, do not own that house. You own an entity that owns the house, or you are a trustee of a trust that owns the house. Long story short, unless you have a legitimate legal claim against every single entity that this medical professional has, it's gonna be extraordinarily difficult to get to all of their personal assets. All right, that, that, that is a perfect overview. And let's, let's tweak it a little bit and let's talk about um, maybe either a spouse or children who are driving. What are the hidden um, liabilities that many of us have, irrespective of us being physicians? So let's, let's take the, the professional liability out of it. Let's, let's now move just to kind of personal liability and the people in and around us. Sure. Um, let's let's talk about car accidents for a second. Um, and I mean, this could be anything. This could be a trampoline in your backyard. This could be a swimming pool. This could be, you know, some guy that you don't know that came over to your house for a Super Bowl party and slipped on something and broke his neck. I, it could be any number of things. The same general principle holds. If we have different groups of assets or an asset itself, just like a house, a large asset itself that's owned by one entity, what we're going to see is that only the entity that owns that asset that's at risk can be held liable. Now, excuse me, is it ideal that something somewhere can be held liable? No, it's not ideal, but it is the reality and it's the system we live in. However, if we take a car accident, we can, we can see a little bit of a clearer example. You're driving down the road, you hit someone in your car, you're at fault, they get injured, they sue you. You don't have an asset protection plan. Again, all of your personal assets are on the table. They're going to sue you, the person that hit them. Anything that has your name attached to it as being owned by you is now at risk. On the flip side, you have an asset protection plan the only person they're going to be able to sue is you. They're not going to be able to sue your practice, you know, unless they're also a patient and there's a malpractice issue. But if they're not, they're not going to sue your practice. This wasn't an accident that occurred at your home. The entity that owns your home, safe. 
Um, the entity that, that a lot of people set up called the safe asset entity that owns all of your safe assets, everything in there, that's all safe. So really what they're looking at is they're looking at the car that you own and the insurance on that car. And if they agree and they say, look, I'm, I want to sue this guy. And the plaintiff's attorney does the asset search and does the, the research necessary. And they find out, I can't do this economically. I can't do it feasibly quickly to get the money that I need and the money that the, that the plaintiff wants. They're going to have a hard time getting an attorney to, to sign on to this, to, to pursue it the way that the plaintiff wants it pursued. And that's going to be what prevents the lawsuit or increases your leverage to an extent that you can get them to settle for pennies on the dollar. Perfect. And that's a, that's a great explanation of how making yourself not an appetizing target can ward off legal claims on the front end um, as opposed to, the, to, to trying to hide assets and do those types of things on the back end um, from that standpoint. Now, you referenced something called kind of a safe asset entity. Uh, mm -hmm. I know this is a little bit granular, but I know some of the, the people listening are going to be engineers. So back to the philosophical question, mm -hmm. when you say a safe asset entity, what do you mean by that? And kind of how, is that, how does that play out in, a, in an asset protection plan? Sure. So when I'm looking at a piece of property, and any piece of property could be considered an asset, as most of everyone that's probably listening knows, I'm going to ask myself one question. And the question is, is if I use this piece of property the way it's meant to be used, is it going to, is it, is there a high likelihood that it will end in liability or a lawsuit? And if the answer to that question is yes, that's what we call a high risk asset. A perfect example of this is a car. If I use a car the way it's meant to be used, every time I get behind the wheel of that car, there's a lawsuit or liability that could potentially occur. On the other hand, if I'm looking at a piece of art on my wall or a grand piano in my parlor, I mean, there are things that I can come up with in extreme and ridiculous hypothetical cases where it could cause a lawsuit, but more likely than not, it's not going to do anything to anyone. It's not going to hurt anybody. And what that means is it's a safe asset. If you use a, a grand piano the way it's meant to be used, it's unlikely that there's ever going to be any liability such that someone could target your grand piano and take it away from you. And that's what a safe asset is. Um, some other examples of safe assets would be things like furniture in your house, household appliances, household electronics, um, collections, various collections that you have could be art, could be rugs, could be fancy shoes, handbags, um, whatever it is that you have that's a collection. Any of those things could fit into that category. Um, savings accounts, money market accounts, certificate of deposit accounts, personal and private brokerage accounts. And I want to be clear here, we're not talking about retirement accounts that are tax benefited or tax deferred. Um, those retirement accounts would be like 401ks, 403bs, the various IRAs. Those aren't included in this because they're already protected under different laws. And so those are some of the things that would be considered a safe asset. And all of those we group into one entity, again, so that even if someone's suing you, they'll find out very quickly that none of the nice things that you have that they might want can become theirs because they don't have a claim against this entity that owns the property. Perfect. And can you give some examples of risk assets that many people own that may not be, they may not characterize uh, in their own head as risk assets? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Gun collections. That's a risk. That's a, a high risk asset. Cars, planes, boats, um, 
cows, if you own livestock, farm animals, those are high-risk assets. I don't know if you've seen what a cow can do to a car in a car on um, cow car accident, but it's not pretty. Um, so those are some things that you may not consider as high-risk assets, but definitely are. Okay. Perfect. All right. Cool. Um, and then many physicians own real estate and or they own um, shares in private real estate syndications. Mm-hmm. Kind of any recommendations on how those should be owned and titled and things of that nature? So I'll, I'll take your question in reverse order. Okay. The, if, they, if they own shares in like a real estate insur- um, investment trust, a REIT, or other uh, syndicated shareholding. So, pri- so private syndication. So these are private. private. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are private shares, not publicly traded. Right. Even if they're private shares in a business and it's not publicly traded, that infers or implies rather that there is a business entity structure there protecting them. So that's good. In fact, if you're looking to invest in something like that, make sure that there is a business structure there and it's not just a bunch of guys getting together and pooling their money. Um, property owned in your own name. If you you know, buy houses and rent them out as real estate properties, what we do is we just make sure each one of those properties is in its own individual entity. And there again, that's so that we don't have a situation where accident occurs on property one and tenant one sues property owner number one but this entity owns 10 properties. That's not what we want. We want to make sure that properties two through 10 are in their own entities so that when property entity one gets sued, that's where the liability stays is with property entity one. Oh, perfect. And then just quick aside, do you have a feeling one way or the other about series LLCs in that, in that situation? I think they are wonderful and underused. I am in the minority currently um, in Texas and and states that are similar to Texas series LLCs uh, do wonderful things and when we work with our Texas clients we always go with a series LLC they're right. cost-effective yep. the statutory language is there that protects us and allows us to separate the assets in a good way um, and it's very helpful it can be very very helpful and a good tool but when we're talking about interjurisdictional assets, like having a series LLC series sell in Texas, owning a piece of property in California, that's where I get wary because the law there is still new and unsettled. And until we get some more things uh, from the courts interpreting those statutes, you don't want to be the guinea pig for that case. You, you want to just wait and see, let some, let some other fool do that for you and then then we'll figure it out from there. Got it. Okay, perfect. And so we're we're running not long on time, but I want to try to keep this decently short. And Sorry so let's talk about legally mine. Um, so full disclosure, I have ne- I'm you know partnering with you guys. I've negotiated uh, a discount for physicians who are coming through us to 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 access you guys because I've been a client for ten plus years. Luckily, I'm in Texas, so I get to use the series. So um, I've had I've had a great time with you guys. Um, talk about why legally mine is different than going to trying to just find either an estate planning attorney or an, or, or an, uh, an asset protection attorney. Why, why are you guys better? Why us rather someone else? Sure. Um, first of all, we work in all 50 States. Um, we don't actually represent our clients. So it's not like you have a, uh, attorney, attorney client relationship. However, 
in our case, it actually works out better for you because we can help you in all 50 states set up different assets and different things. And we are, um, a lot of the attorneys here are licensed in more than one jurisdiction. So that's one thing. We work nationwide. And so we have reaches and understandings of the laws nationwide. We have clients in every state. Second reason is we've been at, we've been at this, our business has been at this for a long time. So the institutional knowledge that gets passed down in this, in this niche market of the law is here. It's not always in other places. Um, the third area, the third thing, why you shouldn't just go down to the attorney down on main street, as nice as that individual is, um, he or she doesn't have the experience with these three interlocking pieces of the law and they can get pretty complicated pretty quick if you don't know what you're doing. Um, and we, the attorneys here, we talk to each other all the time. We uh, bounce ideas off of each other in drafting documents, in changing language on operating agreements, making sure we're understanding how the law works correctly, keeping each other informed of judicial opinions and the like. So we have a lot of good relationships with each other and with our clients, and we can communicate that very click, quickly and very clearly to them. Um, those are the big things that I would focus on. Okay. The other thing I would say is in our operating agreement, we have what we call a non pro rata distribution clause. And this is something it's kind of one of the last safety measures Let, let's say you, you get a lawsuit. The plaintiff is really tenacious. They win. And so they're coming after your stuff. Well, what we've put into the operating agreements is this method of making cash distributions to the owners that says that the owners get to decide which of the owners will receive what percentage of any future cash distributions. Now that might seem like a very small change, but it has a dramatic impact because if are sued in a business entity capacity and they win, the only person whose interest in the entity they're going to be able to take away is yours. So if you're partnered with your wife or another business partner or one of your adult children and you have this non pro rata distribution clause in there, you can say all future distributions will go 100% to other owner who you don't have a legal claim against. If you set up a business like that, a court can't find that fraudulent because it was set up before the, the incident occurred, before the lawsuit happened. And it's something that's completely legitimate that you can do. All righty. Well, that's, that's a nice little twist uh, that I'm pretty sure most people's operating agreements don't have in them. And so, oh, the question I did want to ask you, why is an estate planning attorney not an asset protection attorney? Why is estate planning not asset protection? Estate planning deals more with how you're going to give your stuff to the people you want to give your stuff to when you die. That's really what an estate planning attorney does. And they're very good at what they do. And part of what we do is estate planning. It's an important thing and it overlaps a lot of asset protection. Asset protection is more about making sure you have stuff to give to those other people when you die. Um, and so that takes a whole different avenue and view of how we want to structure assets and how things work. All right. That pretty well sums that up. So is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to convey to, to the people watching and listening? Is there something that I forgot? Is there a piece of information that you think that they readily need to have that we did not cover? I think the only thing I would add um, is that 
in asset protection, we a lot of times use states where people uh, may never have been to, don't live in, and may in some cases have no desire to travel to. And what we're dealing with here is their states have very kind laws that we want to take advantage of for asset protection. Alaska is one of the premier examples. They have specific language in their charging order sections that really work for our clients. And a misconception is that you have to have, you know, some connection to Alaska prior to making an entity there. And that's simply not the case. I think we've gotten a good overview with some in-depth knowledge as to why um, using an asset protection firm that really focuses and specializes primarily on asset, almost exclusively on asset protection um, can give you a better process than finding somebody who says they do asset protection, but it may be a small portion of what they ultimately do um, within their, the scope of their total legal practice. And so I want to thank Josh Robertson from Legally Mind USA for being with us today um, on this asset protection overview. Um, We'll be hearing more from, from, from the lawyers at Legally Mind in the future. Uh, getting updates as, as laws change and as, as things change. And I look forward to working with them in the future. So I want to thank everyone for listening today uh, to the Physicians Road podcast. Uh, today, again, we're on the path to wealth, talking about asset protection. Please go to iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice and subscribe. And also, please leave us a review. Um, the better reviews we get, the more physicians and other healthcare professionals can find us, and the more we can get the word out uh, about these different topics into the uh, into the medical field. You can go to thephysiciansroad.com and go to our resources section. Um, there you will find other interviews that we have done under asset protection with uh, Legally Mind and other people from Legally Mind, or you can go to physicians, with an S, physiciansassetprotection.com, and That's where a lot of these resources will live as well. So thank you, and we'll see you again on The Physician's Road, where you create your life in medicine. The Physician's Road is brought to you by Vernonville Asset Management. Vernonville Asset Management was created to help physicians build wealth and create income beyond Wall Street. Through our exclusive private investments, doctors can begin to free themselves from the burdensome regulations in healthcare by creating income streams independent of medicine. Go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get your free report, Wall Street's Biggest Lie. Again, go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get Wall Street's Biggest Lie and free yourself today. Thank you for listening to The Physician's Road, where you create your life in medicine on your own terms. Please go to thephysiciansroad.com and sign up for your free guides and resources.